Now a message from our advertiser, Bristol-Myers Squibb. So tick to Dekravacitinib, it's showtime. To learn more, visit www.sotik2hcp.com, spelled www.sotyktuhcp.com, or visit us at the Bristol-Myers Squibb booth. You're listening to the Derms and Conditions Podcast. I'm Dr. Jim Dorasso, here with Derms and Conditions Live at the Fall Clinical Dermatology in Las Vegas 2023. And I have with me Dr. Gary Goldenberg, who's one of the course directors. And we're going to be talking about highlights from the meeting. We're thankful for Bristol-Myers Squibb for supporting this particular podcast, Derms and Conditions, which hopefully you're listening to every episode. But this is going to be the best one yet, right, Gary? Ever. Best one ever. Absolutely. So one of the things that was exciting that just happened this week is the approval, the FDA approval of bimbacizumab for the treatment of moderate to severe psoriasis in adult patients that are candidates for systemic therapy or phototherapy. We've been waiting for this for some time. What is different about it is it's an anti-17IL17A and F, which adds some punch to the efficacy of the drug. So what do you see with this particular agent as far as advancing or improving the responses in psoriasis? First of all, I want to say that I'm, I'm happy to be here with you. I'm always happy to talk to you about various topics, but especially dermatology. I think we're living sort of in the, in the golden age of dermatology, and our patients are very fortunate. And this new drug approval is just a testament to the investment that uh, industry is making in our specialty and in our patients. And I think my, my, kind, of, my kind of thought process on biologics in general is that they just keep getting better and they keep getting safer. Mm. So if you look at the data of this new medication, the data looks, you know, incredible. You know, patients are getting really good clearance rates. They are clearing fast. The safety looks very advantageous. And I, I think it's great to have another tool in the toolbox for treating patients with severe, moderate to severe psoriasis. When you have one out of three patients after a single dose getting to PASI 90. Clear. That, it's that is, clear. It's essentially clear. And so the results are, in terms of the efficacy, are, are excellent. But and, when and you I look want, at the simplicity of it, it's the it, same it's, dose, it's great. right? And, with and every I, injection. And I think, look, I think, you know, we get really kind of bogged down with you know, these measurements, PASI 90, PASI 100, PASI 75. When I see a patient with moderate to severe psoriasis, they just want to know that they're going to improve. They just want to know that they're going to get better, that the drug is safe, it's going to be efficacious, that they're going to stay better for a long period of time. Because all of our patients that have had various therapies before, you know, they would kind of go back and forth. They would get better and then they would get worse. They get better and get worse. And some patients, that's even worse than not even improving. Right. I think the fact that they're going to be clear, almost clear, at a very high rate with... Quickly. Quickly, quickly. with good safety, I, I think it just makes, it makes my job so much easier because the conversations are just, you know, it, it's, a, it's a friendly conversation. It's not like the commercials you see on TV where there's a laundry list of potential horrible side effects. And when you go through those... Well, the, the reality the, is the other reasons we have are excellent, but this is an, a significant increment of 
greater improvement and faster improvement. And as far as the safety, there is a higher risk of candidiasis, but it's typically oral candidiasis sure. that's very manageable. And look, I think no drug is, is for every patient. And if we had only one medication approved, it would be really a terrible situation. Right. But we now have a, a long list of highly efficacious and safe medications, and there are going to be some patients who don't get better with every drug, or there maybe the efficacy wanes. So it's always nice to have something new that you can offer to your patients that has high efficacy and good safety. So it's nice to know this is available. There are some warnings in the, in the product monograph that are important to address. They're all things that we often deal with on a regular basis and are, are pretty, pretty easily managed. Another update that actually came from the uh, EADV, the European Academy meeting in Berlin, is we now have three-year data with ducravacitinib, a six milligram tablet given once a day. We now have data to show that the efficacy, once you get the patient, and these patients actually do very good. We're talking about PASI 75, PASI 90, and occasionally PASI 100% clearance with an oral drug, which is better than what we've had in the past, that once they get to that point of the improvement that they're going to get to, which is usually very high, they stay there. They don't drop off in that effect. And in looking at the adverse event profile, I mean, that, Gary, I have a question for you in a moment uh, in clinical practice. Did not get the box warnings that the other Janus kinase inhibitors got. It's, it, it's a TIC2, tyrosine kinase 2 inhibitor, which is a very different profile. And going out three years, there's been no change in the safety signals, so still carries that no-box warning. Because if there was an increase in those adverse events, that label would be changed. So, Gary, I have a question for you. How often does it come up in discussion of patient with from patients that they ask about box warnings, or how do you discuss box warnings with your patients? Yeah, first, I just want to briefly talk about decrevacitinib because I think it's a, it's a great improvement and oral options that we've had in the past. And look, not every patient is the right patient for a biologic. And some patients wanna try an oral treatment before they go in an injectable. And I think having something that has really good efficacy and now three years of safety data is, makes an easy conversation. And what I think we see with a lot of medications, especially some of the newer drugs that have come out in the past, let's say five to 10 years, is once that you see once the safety is established short term, it appears in a lot of these drugs, this one included, that they continue to stay safe. Where some of the medications that were approved, let's say 15, 20 years ago, that wasn't always the case. So here I feel a lot more comfortable giving them giving a patient something that I know has good safety for a long period of time. And look, the fact that it doesn't have a black box warning is certainly helpful. Mm -hmm. Having said that, I'm also comfortable using drugs that have a black box warning. And you just have to sit down and talk to the patient about the warnings. And look, our patient population is fairly healthy. We're lucky overall, in that way. Overall, overall, overall. And a lot of these warnings come from other specialties. Some of our colleagues take care of, of patients that may be on multiple immunosuppressants or immunomodulators. They're older. They're they older. More they're more sick. They have more comorbid comorbidities. There are other medications that may also... Um, have some immunosuppressive or other adverse events. So I think once you talk to the patients and say, look, if you just look at the data in dermatology patients like you, 
that are not also going to be taking other medications systemically that can uh, affect your immune system, I think it's I think patients are more likely to understand. And there are recommendations on how to monitor the patients, what blood tests you need. And we've done that in the past with many other medications. So it's At the end of the new. day, we're doctors. So it's right. sort of our responsibility to make sure we're keeping patients safe. And look, if you can't interpret a, a laboratory report, then perhaps you should be doing something different. <laughs> yeah, that, that's, a, right? that's a consideration. Absolutely. Let's pause for a message from our advertiser, Bristol-Myers Squibb. Sotictu Ducravacitinib, it's showtime. To learn more, visit www.sotictuhcp.com, spelled www.sotyktuhcp.com, or visit us at the Bristol-Myers Squibb booth. So I want to move on to another area, and I think it's really a great time in the area of having other things than topical corticosteroids. And topical corticosteroids are very important to us. They can give us a quick impact when we need it to get a disease under faster control, but they're not something that we want to be using pro in, for long term. But when that was all we had, that's what we had to work with. But we have newer non-steroidal agents, and I'm talking specifically about topical tapinarov, which has a mechanism through aryl hydrocarbon receptors, which was novel, Reflumolast, which is a topical phosphodiesterase 4 inhibitor that isn't associated with the stinging and burning of a previous mm -hmm. agent that's in a different formulation and, and it has different characteristics. I personally think both of these, they're approved for psoriasis right now. Reflumolast just got down to six years of age for plaque psoriasis. Um, they work extremely well. Some people it kicks in very fast. Some people it takes longer, but you can have them keep using it because you're not concerned about the safety aspects of it. So I use them frequently. I find them very effective. But what's been your experience? You know, I'll never forget starting in dermatology in 2003. Um, Joe Uritza used to tell patients all the time that topical steroids are fast to work, fast to come back. And non-steroidals are slow to work, but slow to come back. So, and that's, I still use that in my practice. So if somebody comes in and they need an acute treatment, I will use a moderate, you know, a mid-potency to a stronger steroid to clear them. And at the same time, not waiting to stop the steroid, at the same time, I'm also adding a non-steroidal. Absolutely. And once they're improved, let's say two weeks or whatever time it takes with a steroid, they transition off the steroid and they continue to stay on a non-steroidal. But I start the non-steroidal at the same time. At the same, at the same time, time, you have to. And then tell the patient, Correct. this one, you stop the corticosteroids. I do the exactly With the, the corticosteroids, thing. it's not how strong, it's how long. That's how you, when you get into trouble. Right. right. If you use it for, if you use something for up to, let's say two weeks, four weeks, you know, different drugs have different approval time periods because that's how long they've been studied. But I'm comfortable using a steroid for two to four weeks if it's necessary. Usually it's not even necessary. Sometimes it may not it be. It may exactly. not be, right? But once they transition off the steroid, they stay on a non-steroidal to continue to get their condition, to have right. their condition under control. And keep it in check. Because look, we know what happens if you stop it. They're gonna, it's gonna come back. Right. It's gonna come back at some point. And then I tell my patients to keep the steroid in their medicine cabinet just for an emergency use. If they feel like their condition is getting worse, and you know, conditions always get worse. It, you know, it could be stress-related, diet, health changes, any, any of those things that increase your inflammatory uh, milieu in your body systemically are going to make your, your inflammatory skin conditions worse. They can use that steroid as a rescue if necessary. 
Well, I'm a little bit careful because it depends on the location of where that, that, that might be happening. But if you educate patients properly, uh, I think that's it's well, very, well, very I helpful. Think, and this is the same conversation we just had about the black box warnings. I think if you actually take the time to sit down and talk to your patients and make them understand what the issues are, what's the right thing to do, what's not the right thing to do. And I, we write everything out for them. And, uh, you know, I really believe that if you keep it simple, they'll kind of follow the instructions and, and do what, you're, what they're supposed to. Like if you rush in said, and out, keep everything yeah, as simple a, as possible. The KISS right? principle works for just about exactly. anything. But I think if you're rushing in and out, I, I think patients, you know, patients only remember 50% of what you tell them. Exactly. That's why I think written instructions they are They remember important. 50%, that's high, right? The other thing about these is they're both being, uh, have great data for atopic dermatitis. They're very well tolerated, um, not approved yet for atopic dermatitis. And reflumolast in a foam rather than the cream, the phase three data is now out for seborrheic dermatitis on the scalp, but also on the skin and other areas. Very, very impressive. Right? You, you know, I have to say that I, I look at these two new non-steroidals the way I look at steroids. Steroid, a steroid cream may only have approval, let's say, for psoriasis, but we know that it's also going to work for atopic eczema, for seborrheic dermatitis, right. for contact dermatitis. Anything that's inflammatory, if it has an anti-inflammatory pathway, it might work for. So I've tried both of these off-label, right for various inflammatory conditions, including the ones I just mentioned. Extremely well. And look, yep. like, like any other drug, they work great for some patients, and for some patients they may need something else. But I think we have the tools to really kind of expand the treatment algorithm for our patients, and that at the end of the day, we have to do what's right for the patient in front of us. Well, it's not that long ago that topical corticosteroids, the package insert said, they're approved for use in corticosteroid responsive Correct. dermatoses. That's a very, very broad label, right? But then they got specific, oh, you only studied it for this. That's the only disease that's FDA approved. But we know that these will work in other areas. But I have another question for you because uh, we need to move on in the interest of time. What about in the cosmetic arena? What one or two things that really stood out at this meeting that you think are really important? I, I think acne is an interesting condition. You know, we just had a triple uh, combination therapy approved just this past week. And I think that acne is a condition continues to grow and change. In my practice, most of my, I would say 90% of my acne patients are adult women. And some of them never had acne as teenagers or, right. you know, just had a few pimples, never really had severe acne. So I think it's important that we're continuing to develop tools specifically for that population. It is the fastest growing segment of the acne patients. And I think in, in my practice, I like doing procedures. I use more and more devices to treat acne. And I think that it's a, those are great tools to add to sort of what we're used to using for acne patients, such as topical retinoids and other combination therapies, maybe some oral antibiotics. There are some that are more specific. For, right. for specific for acne, as opposed to being sort of more broad, uh, even I, you know, even isotretinoin I think is still a very good option for some patients. But having a procedure, something that I know compliance is going to be a hundred percent because I'm doing the procedure You're for the patient, 
You're, that's you have it. the patient that's there. It. But on that topical therapy side, we now have benzoyl peroxide with tretinoin in a single formulation. The microencapsulation allows that. We have the triple um, topical the, with, with clindamycin, uh, adapalene, and benzoyl peroxide. But we also have topical cluscoterone, which is the first time we've had an androgen receptor inhibitor that can be used in males and females. But if you think about utilizing benzoyl peroxide with a retinoid or benzoyl peroxide with a retinoid and clindamycin, and now you're also using topical cluscoterone, you're hitting all four pillars with a topical therapy approach, which we've never been able to do before. But what about the devices, there have been lasers that have been approved more recently for acne, and I know you know you've done some work with those. Any thoughts on that? Yeah, I, I love the laser devices for acne. I think that there's advancements. We now can target the acne um, more specifically, and there's some devices that tar they can target the bacteria that causes acne. And, you know, acne is always a conversation. It's like the chicken and the so egg. So which, is, which so are the ones this, that have been approved so now the, most the, recently? The one that I use, I've used the most is called AviClear. And uh, it's a 1726 pulse wave laser. And there's another one that's approved as well. And I also like the 1064 lasers for acne, for maybe more mild acne. And then I also, you know, I, I also like using microneedling with platelet-rich plasma. I think for a patient that has both active inflammatory acne and uh, some acne scarring, it's a really, really good option. So I'll end up with the, your discussion about the oral antibiotics. You know, you know, doxycycline and minocycline, except for the extended release formulation of minocycline, were grandparented in. They're broad-spectrum antibiotics. They work for acne. But saracycline, which is FDA-approved for acne specifically, nine years of age and older, the primary data was on the face. They do have secondary evaluation on the trunk at work with both. But what makes it attractive, I think, is the side effects that we typically see and associated with tetracycline, whether it be GI upset, vaginal candidiasis, photosensitivity, were very low. But it has a narrow antibiotic spectrum. And it spares almost completely the organisms that are in the GI tract, the gram negatives, its activity is primarily gram positive. The GI tract microbiome is very popular in terms of discussing not wanting to perturb that microbiome. So I'd like to end with your thoughts on you that. Know, I, I really love this conversation. In fact, there are some companies that are now developing drugs that specifically target the bacterial uh, populations in the gut for inflammatory conditions such as psoriasis. And I think that we're just scratching the surface with our knowledge of the gut microbiome, but we do realize more and more just how important it is. So I think having an antibiotic that doesn't disturb it as much is a huge advancement for our patients because our patients don't stay on an antibiotic for a week or 10 days. They're on it sometimes for months at a time. Right. So I think having... But Gary, even with those short courses, there's data with these antibiotics that... When they you destroy have the microbiome. Yeah, those completely bacteria persist for months to years. One hundred percent, I agree with you. But for us, it's even more important because our patients down for yeah, so long. Exactly. So I think using something that's more specific is very important. I always um, counsel my patients to make sure that they're taking in live bacterial cultures at the same time. So whether they're taking a probiotic or they're eating a food, 
that's rich in bacterial cultures, usually it's a fermented food. Um, those, are, those are things that we can do just to preserve the patient's general health. Because like you said, sometimes it takes a very long time for the gut microbiome to recover. And sometimes we now have evidence that sometimes it never recovers. Right. So exactly. we want to keep our patients healthy, not just their skin beautiful and clear, but healthy overall. And I think that's just another thing that we can add to our, and our even practice. Even if you're not fully convinced, if you can avoid the problem in the first place, why wouldn't you? But you said scratching the itch. We don't have time to go through all of this, but itching has really gotten a lot of uh, a lot of attention, and we have agents that are now approved or in development for parigonodularis, more coming with atopic dermatitis, but we'll have to put that off to a, to a future Sounds uh, discussion. Great. So, so we want to thank Bristol-Myers Squibb for supporting this particular podcast, and Dr. Goldenberg, as usual, you are elucidating to our colleagues. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. Thank you for listening to this episode of Derms and Conditions. If you have any questions, please email us at podcast at dermsquared.com. That's P-O-D-C-A-S-T at D-E-R-M-S-Q-U-A-R-E-D.com. Podcast at dermsquared.com. And now a message from our advertiser, Bristol-Myers Squibb. Sotik2 Decravacitinib, it's showtime. To learn more, visit www.sotik2hcp.com, spelled www.sotyktuhcp.com, or visit us at the Bristol Myers Squibb booth.